everyone. Hi, hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your best friend. I'm sitting here with actor, filmmaker, writer, podcast host, person you definitely remember from your childhood, Ryder Strong. Hello. Hi, thank you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. So you and I met, we were both um, special celebrity, yeah. I'm going to say, judges <laughs> at a live storytelling show. Uh, I've talked about the experience a little bit with my listeners. I uh, we diverged in terms of our judging style and our criteria. Oh, that's true. We had a little bit of a disagreement. It was, it didn't come to blows. No. I folded quick because yeah. there were three of us. It was, and I, I felt one way and you and Sasha, the other guest, I mean, the other judge felt another way. Right. And I real, and we were like taking too much time that to make our decision. Right at the end, right? It was really the last call, like who's going to actually win. And it came down to two people. I think it was earlier than that because oh, there was okay. someone I was making a case for and you okay. guys wanted to boot her <laughs> because you you guys were just very strict format-wise and I think you felt that it didn't meet the criteria for a good story. And I'm like, right. but I was entertained. Right, right. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, we, I was kind of left out, like I'm not sure how serious to take that whole process. Like, is this just stand-up comedians telling jokes or are we actually like, you know, and I, I haven't really listened to the podcast story worthy so i'm but i'm assuming it's mostly about stories right like it's not just like jokey joke 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 well i would be the wrong person to ask as well <laughs> <laughs> about that one but i right. guess i guess yeah that's what it came down to is you guys were like j- being more more picky more we were being format. sticklers yeah you we were, were being, being sticklers. pretentious sticklers <laughs> yeah and i was being story. like fun down-to-earth totally. cool girl you know like i am <laughs> I think that's that's accurate. I mean, yeah. do you feel like you're a stickler in oh, general? Totally. Totally. Yeah. Especially when it comes to like storytelling or, you know, like I, I think and, and Sasha, it was interesting to see this side of Sasha, too, because Sasha and I have been friends for a long time, but I've never actually like worked with her. I've been in a room with her. We've given each other notes on stuff mm-hmm. that we've written. But um, it was funny to hear her sort of echo a lot of the same things that I've, you know, it's like when you're when you've been writing scripts for a while. Like there's everybody thinks that they can write and everybody thinks that they can tell a story, you know, and you spend so much time learning that you don't know anything and you like <laughs> there that there's so much form that you have to figure out and like basics of storytelling. And um, so I think like after a certain point, yeah, you become a snob about that. You know, it's like, no, you can't. You, that's not a good story. That didn't <laughs> go anywhere. There wasn't enough change. You know, protagonist did not go through a journey that took them from point. You know, like there's right. a sort of basics that like you can tell if somebody like, has Aristotle it or not. Aristotle would vomit. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I was, I, it was pretty funny that she was as snobby as, as I was about so it. So where did you learn about like the formal rules of storytelling then? Because I think since you're, you're former child actor yeah uh, one might think oh just you sort of soaked it up through osmosis is that the case but you studied it right no yeah well that's the thing i think that like i've always been amazed at how many people i've worked with in the entertainment industry actors especially but even like producers even writers who don't understand other sides of of the same industry. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like they don't know what it's like to actually be a director, like actors who have worked for years in television and then they get their first chance to direct. And they're like, wait a minute, I have to tell the camera guys where to point. You know, it's like, it's like, Oh yeah, because their experience is like 
so different. They, they're, they're so focused on what they have to focus on as an actor and learning their lines and, you know, what their character's all about and then showing up and they have all this makeup for two hours and mm. then they walk into a room and everything's already been decided for them, like where the cameras are, how the audio is going to be recorded. Like there's so many choices where you're shooting, you know, like producerial decisions. And I think that you can just like coast through uh, one side of the entertainment industry without ever seeing the other. Um, so I was sort of like knocked on my ass pretty young, um, when I tried to make my own stuff, you know, at the age of like 19, um, I produced a film with my, my brother and, um, it was like, Oh, we can make movies cause we've been in the TV industry for so long. And it was like, well, who's going to direct it? It was like, well, our friend, she wrote it so she can direct it. And it's like, that's not always the case. You know, mm-hmm. like there actually should be somebody who has done tons of directing experience or who knows, ex- you know, and she was fine. It was great. But you well, know, which movie was that? It was called buck naked arson. Um, but you know, it's just like a total independent film experience at the age of 19. That was sort of like, Oh, there's so much more. And then of course, like learning about distribution after that. And like, I think that experience, like we failed on like so many levels. I think the movie turned out fine, but in terms of like getting it out and like in retrospect, like we could have done so much better. We could have gone to festivals. We could have like, and I just didn't know what I was doing. And at the time I was going to college and trying to like see about leaving the industry. It was like one foot in, one foot out. Is that when you were at Columbia? Yeah. It's or right. Um, so I started, I started going to school during, while Boy Meets World was still going here at Occidental in LA. And then um, when the show ended, I transferred to uh, Columbia, New York. So that was right about when 1920 um and in the summer between we produced this film and um yeah i think it sort of knocked me on my ass and like taught me that i still had a lot to learn um and so i was an english major and i was always into literature um which is like sort of one side of storytelling and you know i kept focusing on that but i also started taking film classes reading every book on filmmaking and screenwriting that i could and then about you know, three or four years later is when I, my brother and I were like, okay, we, we have to take this seriously and start writing scripts. And we've been writing together ever since. Um, yeah. You know, so what's the, the first film you made where you felt like it came together and like, Oh, I, I'm putting into practice the, the things I messed up the first time. Um, so it's been, it was only short films. Like my brother and I haven't made a feature yet. Um, uh, directed, written and directed. So our first short film um, where we we were like, okay, let's let's just do this. Um, that was, it's called Irish Twins. Um, it's available on iTunes. It's like 20 minutes long drama. I'm in it. My brother's in it. We wrote it and directed it and put ourselves in it because it was like, all right, that'll save us the most time. And this is back, you know, this is in 2008. So we wanted to shoot on film. We shot on 35 millimeter. We, you know, hired a full crew. We like did everything we could to to make as high production value as possible. And that was sort of, you know, that was based on having at that point, you know, done like independent film as an actor. Um, you know, I, I had done this film called Cabin Fever and that sort of like set in motion like, oh, Ryder Strong is like a cult horror actor. Mm-hmm. And so I kept being in all these horror films and like Cabin Fever 2 and like, you know, and and. I just started looking around at people who were like in their early thirties around me who had way less experience than I did at the age of 25. And I remember being like, I don't know if I want to be on this side of the camera anymore. Like, I think, I think I can do that job better and it's more interesting to me. Wait, you saw people who had less experience than you who were Crew, on the other side. Right, like writers and directors, right. you know, and like the, there would be tension where it'd be like, I don't, I don't think they should be shooting it this way, but. I'm just the actor and I have to commit wholeheartedly. And then like if the movie, you know, or the scene wouldn't turn out very good, I'd be like, why didn't I say, you know, why can't I be in charge of this? Mm -hmm. I'm a control freak, basically. That's what it comes down to. And when you're an actor, you're, 
you're at the mercy of the project you're in, you know? And so I think that, so, and my brother and I have been making movies with our VHS camera since we were like four and five years old in our backyard. So it just made sense for the two of us to like, let's do something together. Let's, you know, and so we made Irish Twins and that premiered at Tribeca and, you know, got us attention and sort of started getting like people to read our scripts and take us seriously. And then we made two more short films in the next couple of years. Um, and that really solidified our, you know, as far as like getting an agent and getting meetings. And then, you know, it's been a lot of work since. And the problem with this industry is like, we don't have much many finished products. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, we've sold a script here. We sold a show here. But these things don't actually get made. So it's like, ugh. so even though we've been working our ass off for the last, I don't know, five or six years, like, as far as like finished credits that have gone out there, directing Girl Meets World episodes has been like it, you know, mm -hmm. but we've been working nonstop in between. So that's what we're sort of at a point now where we have to make a feature film. Like we kind of have to raise the money ourselves and get out there and just make something. How did the funding work for the shorts? Um, we just paid for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, I mean, we're, we're, we're at some points we were like crowdfunding was an option. It was just like, this is not worth it. Let's just, you know, and our first short we spent a lot of money on because it was like we have to shoot on film and and then we learned our lesson which is like you don't have to spend any money if people believe in it mm -hmm. and so for our next two shorts I, I i i don't think we spent more than a couple thousand dollars like and for you know 15 minute shorts and it was just begging favors and you know getting as many friends on board as possible creatively um and then you know taking advantage of them <laughs> i think people might be well, i know i'm surprised to hear you say and then after you know we had something to show i'm putting words in your mouth but like we had something yeah. to show for it we got an agent yeah because i think people would think well isn't it a didn't you don't you already have agents and wouldn't it be easy for you to get representation just based on who you are right yes and that was a problem is that like i didn't want representation just based on who i was do you know what i mean mm -hmm. and um there was a lot of weird transition periods where it'd be like oh my manager who also wants to represent me as a writer and it'd be like yeah but i don't think they actually like my writing do you know what i mean like <laughs> right. they're gonna be able to service this part of my career but i don't like can they if they don't care about it so it was like i really had to i really wanted to divorce my um my brothers and my writing and directing from the acting as much as possible mm -hmm. um i mean yeah, that's why even with the girl meets world when that came up it was a debate it was like we had to sit down and be like do we want to be tv directors and you know it came down to like well this is a great opportunity to just work with actors and make some money and and in a you know and, a, and it's so funny because for us it was like kind of like directing multi-camera was never something that interested us like we want to be filmmakers or if we're going to make television we'd prefer to be making uh much like single camera stuff mm -hmm. um because it's drama. more like film? More directorial yeah right. it's just more about the director's vision you know um something like uh girl meets world is it's about the performances it's about the actors and mm -hmm. the, the comedy so it's like writing and acting are the priorities you know but in directing multi-cam are you also directing their performances exactly and that's the fun part like um and, you know, it's basically a play because you spend five days, the first three of five days are just rehearsing with the actors. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's just the director and the actors. So that's what we loved is like putting that play together every week. Uh, once the cameras arrive, it's like a very sort of straightforward technical process. It, you know, four cameras, they're pointing different directions and you just go around being like, you have a two shot here, you have it. And it's basic, you know, and then mm -hmm. the audience comes in and you just kind of put on the show. And, and, uh, and that camera work, it requires a certain like mental, like, series of leaps that but because we grew up with it and we were around it it wasn't that that, that that's not that difficult for us um so it was fun it was always fun but creatively like 
you're never going to be like, you know, did you see that great shot in the episode of Girl Meets mm-hmm. World? You know, like only the Strong Brothers could have pulled off. And it's like, no, like you, it's not about the the look of the show. It's about the performances and the story. Um, I actually remember I I was dating a guy who was a film critic and like very like he ground his own lenses in college and and <laughs> and we were watching Friends and he's like, look at that shot. That was so deft or something. Really? I, I was like I. <laughs> It was just like the way they clo- they did a close up on Jennifer Aniston uh-huh. and I like pulled away from something and did a close up and it was like I literally never ever would have noticed it and right. even after it was pointed out I still don't know what was so amazing about it. <laughs> That's pretty awesome though. Yeah. You found something. So he would have been very right, impressed good. <laughs> with with Girl Meets World. Yeah. How did the opportunity to direct Girl Meets World come up? Oh, it was, they just wanted me to be on the show as an actor and, and then like, you I said you know I had no interest cuz I'm not acting anymore and then it was like you know, it became obvious that they they really really wanted me, and I was like, okay, look, here's here's what I I give me at least an episode um, to direct, and let me do it with my brother. And that took a little while because the DGA, the Directors Guild, is very weird about team directing mm-hmm. teams. Not weird; they're just very particular about it because they don't they don't want their actors to be taken advantage of. It's it's kind of a weird situation, but so is I it had, a money thing? Like they don't want two to get paid for as one exactly. And what what they're really most afraid of is that the the job will be sort of divided into like a technical person and mm-hmm. an actory person and that producers will be able to just pair force people to be teams so it'll be oh. like well this person's really good talking to these actors so we'll hire them pay them half and then hire this person who's really good with the cameras and pay them half and which like you know and we get two directors for the price of one um they really don't want to water down the sort of idea of, of a singular vision like that right. a director has so I did the first two episodes of Girl Meets World by myself with like Shiloh kind of standing off to the side like, okay, just here, but can't do anything. (laughs) And then we went to the DGA and, you know, pled our case where we like, you know, go before a board and say like, we have always directed together. We only want to direct together and blah, blah, blah. And then they were like, okay, and we got the approval. And then Shiloh joined me and we directed like another like 16 episodes together, um, which was so much fun. How much older is your brother? Uh, Only 18 months. So we're pretty close. And- how do you guys work together? Um, it's just kind of like psychic brother connection. You know, like we oversimplify it when we talk to prospective uh, hirers mm-hmm. um, because, you know, he's – my brother is a still photographer and so he's ve- he is very visual. And so we kind of say like, oh, he's the visual guy and I'm the actor guy. But that's not the case. Like we're, 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 we pretty much split everything down the middle because um, he was a kid actor too. Um, and we both just grew up in this industry and we love every aspect, theater, television, film. Um, and so, yeah, we, uh, we do a lot of prep. I I mean, I'm assuming a lot of directors do a lot of prep, but our main thing is that we don't ever want to disagree with each other on set. You know, we never want to be like, so, um, so we try and make as many decisions ahead of time as possible. Of course, once you're on set and it starts to rain or something changes, it's like you have to throw everything out. But why do you not ever want to disagree on set? Well, because we never want – it's like we have to be as much a singular vision as possible, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is – it's a lot easier when we've – when it's stuff we've written, you know? Like um, not only our short films, but we created a pilot um, that we shot uh, for Hazy Mills, uh, Sean Hayes' company. And it was like, you know, something that we had written, that we had created, that the, when then we were directing. That is so easy for us because it's like 
in the writing, we've already talked through everything. We've been like, this character's feeling this way, this character's da-da-da. And so when it comes to time to be on set, we have such a clear vision. It's more difficult when it's like a Girl Meets World episode with like a scene that we're kind of like, I don't know why this character does it. So that, you know, so we have to, we have to have talked about it the night before so that when we show up in front of the actors, we're not like, what do you think? I don't know. What do you, and like, if Shiloh and I have a disagreement about why a character is doing something, it's like suddenly that makes the actor completely at a loss. Mm-hmm. So we have to come in strong and be like, here's what we've said. We've right. thought, you know, and like, um, well, yeah, I've heard that. Sorry, I just cut yeah, you off. No, go for it. I've heard that on a set, instability can, or pro, like it, it it all trickles down from the top. So yep. if the director is nervous or, you know, an array of yep. negative, yep. like vulnerable things that can infect the set. Yeah. Is that true? It's indecision is the worst thing you can have because it's like half the time, you know, whether a camera's in a certain place or whether a, a, an actor is thinking or feeling a certain thing, like really doesn't make that much of a difference mm-hmm. in the long run. I mean, creatively it can make a big difference, but like in terms of, Though you just have to make a decision and go with it. Like the worst thing is is somebody who's indecisive, and that's why so much of directing is just about being confident and like, here's what I want, and like whether I'm right or wrong, at least I'm I have a vision, and everyone follows that. And you know, it's like being a captain of a ship. You know, if you're like, I don't know, those waves are looking really big. Maybe we should go this way or this. You know, then it's like nobody trusts you. <laughs> so you just have to. Jeff has audio of me directing a, a film. <laughs> How'd it go? Maybe I, oh, hell no. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, probably, but well, then again, though, mm-hmm. it depends. Oh, my God. That's a <laughs> that nightmare. was real. Is that real? <laughs> yeah. I mean, not really directing a film, but that was me trying to express something. Oh, God. <laughs> nope. Yeah. No edits in there. <laughs> that's that's all genuine. Right. See, that can, <laughs> that can throw some instability into the mix and make people <laughs> insecure. Oh, fuck. That's funny. Um, <laughs> what is Shiloh best known for? Um, he was like not best known as an actor, uh, but I guess he was on a show called Dinotopia, which ran mm-hmm. on ABC. It was supposed to be this big dinosaur show. He spent like nine months in Budapest working with like giant animatronics and like all the CGI dinosaurs. And then they put the show up against friends and it got canceled <laughs> in like three episodes oh, or something. No. Uh, so that was like in his 20, that was like when he was like 21 or 22. Um, and before that he was on a show right when, when boy meets world started, he was on a show called the mommies, which is on NBC for like two seasons. Um, so my mom was actually shuttling between the two sets. Cause we were both still under 18 mm-hmm. working on, two different TV shows at the same time. He was almost on Boy Meets World, actually, um, to play, to be Ben Savage's brother. They wanted him to come in and network for that uh, against Will Friedle, but um, he had a, already had an offer to do The Mommy, so he went off and did that. It's crazy. When you're a kid actor, like, the world is very small. You know, mm-hmm. like, the, the, about, the amount of people, like, kids that are actually in that arena auditioning against each other. Like, I mean, I met Ben Savage when we were 11. It was down to the two of us and Luke Edwards for the for uh, a part in the movie Newsies, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like everybody knew everybody. It was like, oh, and so when Boy Meets World came along, it was like, oh, Ben, Ben Savage from Fred's Little Brother who did that thing. Who I met at the audition that one, t-. you know, it's like you all knew each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so Shiloh was sort of in that world, and then he bailed, uh, bailed on acting way earlier than I did. He like went to college for writing for a while, and then it was about photography. And then he kind of got back into acting for a little bit. And that's when right around that same time we were like, we need to just start making our own stuff. This is the acting lifestyle is is pretty rough. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely want to come back to that. Yeah. Um, did that create like was there competition between you or did it create any weirdness that you're 
you became so much more well known. No, no. I mean, I, I think, I, I mean, we were just always on each other's team. You know what I mean? Like my parents were just so good about making us feel like, you know, we're acting, we're all trying to do this. Like, and if one of us makes it, then that's great for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that carried through, you know, like it really, um, and Shiloh is a super confident, you know, guy who's comfortable in his own skin and his own life. So it just wasn't an issue. Um, and then, yeah, I think, you know, now coming at, coming at the, uh, the writing and directing, it only helps that I have, have had the success I have, you know, it opens more doors. It gets us more meetings. It makes people remember like, Oh, the kid from that show is now writing, you know? So like, I think he's appreciative of that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and understands that, that he's benefiting from that. Um, and so, yeah, it's never been competitive. It's always been, um, sort of, we've always been the strong brothers kind of on as a team. And how did you both get into it so young? You started in Les Mis, right? Yeah. Well, actually we both were doing plays. I mean, that's the thing. It's, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of see like our life is filtered through like the peaks of my career. Mm -hmm. But the truth is like, you know, we were doing local plays from like five years old on and it was like, Shiloh would get this part and Ryder would get that part and then we'd be in a play together and then, you know, we and it just kept building. And did, then did your parents love theater or were you did you no, guys show an interest? Like, they, how did that happen? It was just us. It was just my dad. My dad was one of the early uh, adopters of a VHS camera. So mm-hmm. like, I think I was two when he got the first one. It was like one of these things you had to have like a shoulder <laughs> bag and you were basically carrying a VCR around with you, that you had to hit like record on. Um but we loved it and we just loved making movies at home. And I think, you know, my, my parents were just the kind of parents, like whatever we were into, they'd be like, that's our life. You know, mm-hmm. and my dad was, is, was a firefighter in San Francisco, um, which meant that he would ha- he would work 24 hour shifts. So he would do like work for like two or three days straight and then have four days off. So we'd have lots of time together as a family. Um, I grew up on 15 acres of redwood forest. My parents built the house I grew up in. It's just like this magical wonderland of woods. And it was like no one around. Yeah. And just like no one around for miles. And it was like, all right, we got a camera. Let's make a movie today. And like the whole family would spend all day, you know, editing and adding music. And like, just, we just learned the basics. I mean, the horrible VHS basics of filmmaking. <laughs> but I think, you know, my, so my parents were just encouraging and involved and um, we just, but they were never actors. They were never in the entertainment entertainment industry in, in any capacity, except that we dragged them into it. Um, and then, yeah, the big, the, I guess the big break came when it was when I was 10. And, um, but you know, someone had seen Shiloh in a play, a, a, a local woman called my mom out of the phone book and was like, I saw your son in a play he should audition for um, Les Miserables. They're holding cattle call auditions in San Francisco. Um, so we like, was she part of the audition? No, she was just a random. She, woman? she had a daughter who was going to audition, and she had just seen Shiloh in this play and was like, "I think he's perfect." And so my mom was like, "Well, I have another son too," and was like, "Right or Shiloh?" We loaded up in the car at five in the morning, drove mm-hmm. down, stood in line. We were the first people in line out of like hundreds of kids in line. Shiloh went first, um, and then I went second, and by that afternoon, I had the job. And then it was like, oh, now we have to drive to San Francisco six days a week. Um, My poor mom, and she did it. She did it for nine months. She shuttled me an hour and a half each way into the city um, because I would have to be there at like six for an 8 p.m. curtain, and then, you know, it's a three-hour show. So I wouldn't get home till after midnight usually. and yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot of commuting and commitment on my mom's part. Were you insane. going to school? Yeah. So at that point I was still in public school. So like when this came along and 
so the the school was luckily just small enough and they were cool enough to be like Ryder can come he can sleep in so like i didn't have to be there at eight in the morning um i still ended up making it a lot of times because i when I was a kid and i would just wake up and be fine but my mom sort of had this policy of like if you sleep till 10 or 11 or whatever then we'll just go to school for the afternoon um so I was already sort of falling out of the public school system mm-hmm. and then, yeah, and then pretty quickly had to figure out an alternative because we were going to LA and, you know, just more stuff was taking us away from home and, and the public school system can't really handle that. It's, you know, it's, it's attendance based. That's how they keep track of you. Um, so then we started homeschooling and then eventually like small hippie alternative private school situation. Was it, do you remember it being fun? Uh, school or acting acting all of it was awesome yeah no acting was definitely fun um i still have dreams about doing les miserables like that was just still to this day probably the the best experience of my life really oh my god yeah it was like i think it just hit me at the right age where i was 10 years old and my imagination was exploding and the idea of like being an actor was kind of like and the the role of Gavroche and Les Mis is such a fun role. It's like you're running around, you're shooting guns, you get killed, you get a big <laughs> death scene. And um, there's also whole periods of the play where Gavroche is on stage with other – like there's all these like actors playing like the sort of homeless people of – of uh paris and there would be all this time where we would just be on stage playing in character and like at 10 years old that's like your dream come true so i would just like run around and like pretend to pickpocket people and like (laughs) all these like 24 year old actors who are also like playing make-believe with me it was like so much it was like a dream come true and everyone was so nice and um yeah and you know it just felt like it, it just the the world sort of opened up you know like san francisco as a place became like the neighborhood became like my neighborhood we got to know everybody around and like um yeah and one of my uh one of the actresses uh, the kids who was in it was uh, larissa olenic who is still like one of my best friends and like you know we grew up we she ended up playing my girlfriend on boy meets world for a little while like and she's so talented and great and it's just so cool that like you know something that happened at 10 years old like still yeah so whenever i have dreams of like doing plays i'm still at the current theater in san francisco it's still 1990 Mm -hmm. um that's just like that was such a mind-blowing experience and you know but it yeah it made acting it made me realize how fun acting could be and that it could be undone on such a big scale right so i uh was reading a reddit ama that you did and someone was saying like the I mean, this is a a paraphrase. The question was basically like, you seem like someone who thinks a lot and thinks critically. And how did that affect your acting? And you like, as that began to emerge even more, and you explained that you had changed your whole, you, you had changed your whole approach to acting recently. And also you've quit acting. Yeah. Um, Well, so this is a two part question. One big part is I, I would love to know about your decision to not act anymore and, and, what went into that and why you made that and also in what way did you like how did your approach change yeah um well they they definitely go hand in hand i think that's kind of i i just i think i just really learned how much work acting actually requires you know i think when you're a kid actor it's it's kind of natural to like just show up and like use your imagination and not overthink things and to just have fun. And like when someone says, you know, Oh, we need you to stand over here and run over here and be happy about this or be sad about that, whatever. It's like, it's just such a intuitive sort of natural thing. And, um, I think 
for someone like me, I coasted on that for a long time, you know, mm. where it's like, okay, but I don't think I ever thought about what acting is. Like I never considered what it means as an art form. Um, and also what, like, I, I, I could have sat there and said like, well, I think, you know, Jack Nicholson's a good actor and Keanu Reeves is a bad actor, but I couldn't tell you why. Like, mm-hmm. it would just be like this sort of like, I just think they're good or bad. And and honestly, it just never occurred for me to like take it seriously, mostly because I felt like I already had a career. So where, you know, in that period when I think most people that want to be actors are going to theater school, taking acting classes and having these discussions and like figuring out what kind of actor they want to be or what kind of uh, approach they can take to their work. I was studying English and studying literature and then studying fiction writing and screenwriting and filmmaking. And like, I focus on those aspects. Um, and so, um, it was when I started dating my wife, um, right about the same time that I was, I was putting, you know, starting to direct the short films. Um, and my wife is, is an actress and she's really good and she's always cared about it. And it's always like, that's always been her number one priority. And we just started working together. Like, you know, I'd be helping her for auditions at the time I was still auditioning. So she would help me. And we just started having these conversations that were kind of pushing me out of my comfort zone as far as like approaching characters. Um, you know, I think that there's, there's this American school of like, um, personality acting where it's like oh you just sort of learn a base level like um i can i can mimic real behavior i can talk like a real human being and so i just can do like a version of me in that mode and then Mm -hmm. like that's what acting is it's like and i think that only goes so far you know and And was that what you did sure yeah i mean i don't think i thought about what i did i think it was just like i you know whereas like you, you look at like an english or an australian school of acting and I think the reason that they're so much more successful than us right now in this area is that they train their actors to think of the characters outside of themselves. And they have to uh, approach material with this idea that, okay, it's not just me showing up and being my charming self or a version of my charming mm-hmm. self. It's me figuring out uh, new levels of charm and new levels of, of uh, artifice that I have to make not artificial. Mm-hmm. And that... Um, that's just such a to me it's such a richer process and like can yield you know i think there's a reason that we can handle kate blanchett in like any kind of role as opposed to a lot of american actors who we like basically we want tom cruise to be tom cruise like just be a version of tom cruise mm-hmm. which you know is an amazing art form and it's not being a movie star is like this weird magical thing that like yeah, you either have that or you don't. Um, and I think that is a talent. And I think it takes a lot of work and a lot of skill doesn't really interest me at all. And then I think um, like real acting is, yeah, it's 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 a lot more work. It's a lot more attention to the material, attention to yourself and your modes of expression, learning like, you know, I think like it's great for actors to be like very physically in shape, um, to know how to use their voice in a million different ways, to know how to use their face and all these, like all the basics of like theater acting skill set, I think is so great. Um, and then once you like, once the, you get to a certain point, like as where you've like mastered your own, you know, manipulating your body and your face and your voice and like being able to do great character work. The key is living in the moment in a way that is terrifying. Um, and I think that, you know, the best actors are pushing themselves constantly without a net onto a tightrope, you know, um, and really uh, taking chances. And if if they're not in a situation where they're improvising the words that they're saying, because that's often not the case, then they're improvising 
the the actual experience as much as possible like they're living it in a way that's you know and um that takes a lot that takes a lot of emotional energy that takes a lot of actual like physical energy um and uh you got to be living your life around you know i mean you look at like somebody like christian bale it's like this person's kind of psychotic (laughs) do you know what i mean like that's such a level it's awesome but jesus i don't want to live that life you know and i feel like a lot of actors are 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 working that hard because they're in a play local theater you know like and that's just a lot um you know and i look at like my wife like my wife's ability to hold emotion like right at the surface of like and she can stay there and sustain that for like two days of filming and like you know it's you mean even when she's not filming like is she that method no she's not method at all like yeah no it's not like it's just like she's just keeping herself on accessible yes it's accessible and like and she knows her own and she can do it and like so when she shows up she's been working on the show the fosters and they like you know she's the drug addict mom on the show and and, like they've just put her character through the ringer and like they do it because they know she can do it as an actor because she's the one who shows up and is like what do you need tears okay give me five seconds I'm there. And you're like, what? Like, you know, (laughs) and she sort of lives in this, this space and she keeps herself there. And, you know, that's a lot of that is staying up on your training, like acting classes or plays that you can do, or like working with fellow actors or improv class, whatever it is that's like keeping you in that zone. Like, I just don't have what it takes for that. And I think, um, I think I just realized like, okay, if I'm going to be an actor, I want to be a good actor and I want to be the best actor I can. And that is a full time commitment. Like, even if, you know, even if it's not about the actual like work, um, jobs, um, it's about the audition process and like showing up and giving your all to something that might be a piece of crap, but you can't make that decision. Mm -hmm. You have to show up and just commit to it. Um, and I got really tired of that. Like I got really tired of like sitting there going like, I I just don't think this is well-written. I don't think that this character is very interesting. Um, And part of that too, you know, is, is where I found myself. Like there aren't that many great roles between the ages of like 18 and 28 for actors. Cause this kind of this no man's land where it's like, you can't play high school anymore. Cause you're, you're kind of too old for that. Mm-hmm. But really if they want like a 25 year old character, they're hiring a 32 year old to play that part. Like somebody who has a little bit more life experience, who can still look that age. Um, and so I don't know. I just sort of, you know, it's like, like, like I said earlier, I found myself doing a lot of bad horror films or like just films that I was like feeling left without an anchor as far as a character or as as an actor. Um, And it just wasn't worth it anymore. It was like, I need to be, um, I need to be writing and directing my own stuff. And then once I started doing that and seeing what the actors were bringing to our projects, I was so impressed with them that I was like, I can't do that. Like I, I need to let the the professionals, the professional actors do that. Um, Did, so how does it work with a child actor? Like are, if it, if that child actor doesn't have training, but is just doing it intuitively, like how much of a process is there? Are people giving you line readings or coaching or? It's always different, you know, and that's the thing. It's, it's a, it's, it's a huge, like it was a huge debate on the girl meets world set, you know, cause, um, Michael Jacobs, the creator of the show loved to give line readings because he would write, he would write every word exactly how he imagined it in his head. And he'd be like, this is the way the joke works, you know? And we always made, we made fun of him. He's, we would always say like, you're giving me ba da ba da ba. I want ba da ba da ba. 
<laughs> it's like he would literally say stuff like that. Um, and then his references would always be like, you know, you know, the 1936 version of Run 'em Run 'em Cowboy. And you're like, what are you talking about? You're insane. Um, and, you know, he'd be saying this to 12 year olds. And he did the same thing on Girl Meets World, even worse. Um, and, you know, so in that situation, it was like this weird thing where, on one hand, like, Yes, he did write the joke. He knows exactly the way he wants it to be heard. And so he's right because he's the creator of the show. So the kids would come in and, you know, he would be like, no, that's horrible. You're doing it. And he would just give him a line reading. Um, whereas like my brother and I, line readings are anathema because we've been on the other side of that. And I think they're the worst thing you could do to an actor. Why? Because it's basically like, I think the most, the least interesting version of acting, which is what. 80% of acting we see on TV is, I feel like, is this sort of like um, base level, uh, okay, the scene, you know, if two cops are in the scene and they have to, you know, one of them walks in, is mad at the other one and, and needs to get this, you know, piece of paper off to about this witness and like get out of the room. So they come in and it's like, okay, you have two actors and and the, it's written really basically where like this one comes in and he has this this line that's uh at this intensity level and like as a director or whatever they don't like actually consider anything beyond the like immediate objective of like you just have to get that piece of paper so stop him from getting that piece of paper and you just have to get that piece of paper go and the lines would be like written in in like like such to the point basic like non not multi-layered it's like i need that piece of paper well you can't take that piece of paper you know whatever and then it's like uh okay let's add a little twist to it and like the director will like give a line reading and like try and make it more interesting and then it's and it's like it just starts to like fall apart under nothingness like there's nothing there whereas like like, like there's not real people well act, it. yes actors become meat puppets they mm-hmm. become like delivery systems of information it's like mm. let's talk about this piece of paper i'm going to start you know and it's like like law well, and order exposition SVU. yes but i mean it happens on every show every type of show and and like it if actors just show up and do that job they may do very well they'll get paid we will all watch their tv show we but what makes us like lean forward and go like wait a minute, is watching somebody really live, like scare themselves, take a chance, uh, say something that they didn't expect to say. Like there's like, we know human behavior when we see it. There's a reason why like all those Judd Apatow films are like so hysterical is because they're, they're improvising. Like you're and that's like a comedy has, has now gone there completely. Like it's pretty rare nowadays to see a written comedy outside of television, but in film, it's it's all improvisational these days because that's what we respond to. It's like it's not even that Zach Galifianakis is that funny half the time. It's just like you can't believe that a person just said that thing. Mm-hmm. It's like what? But and it's because he's improvising. He's like trying to destabilize whatever whoever's in the scene with him, and you feel that energy. And it's like oh, and it's like that's real acting. You know, that's it's scary and it's it's bizarre and it doesn't always result in the funniest or like the most productive thing. But I feel like when you give when you give an actor a line reading, when you like come at the most like basic like okay you're giving me uh, eight and i need 10 and like i have a very specific idea of where 10 is and what it's supposed to sound like then the actor just is doing it by rote and like even if they're very good at that uh it's so uninteresting like i find it just like flat you know it's like okay yes you delivered the information yes you delivered the scene and i think like i said this is 80 percent of the acting that's done in american television like it's kind of just functional and it's fine um and it's it's a writer's medium so the, the writing is is where you know a lot of the work is being done and the heavy lifting is being done and then i yeah i mean 
So anyway, back to the Girl Meets World set, there was this tension where my brother and I would, you know, we would be encouraging these kids to like, do whatever you want, try it differently, you know, and it was always kind of a battle because it'd be like, well, when Michael gets here, he's going to tell you how he wants it. But Mm. in the meantime, (laughs) just have fun with it. And we were trying to do that, not because... You know, on one hand, we did think it would actually help the project and elevate the the, the humor and the, the the acting on the show, but also just because we felt like we owed it to these actors, these young actors, because we were in the position where we were always being told how to do things as mm-hmm. kid actors. And that sucks. It's like part of the reason why I think I didn't like acting that much is because I felt like, oh, I just show up and someone says faster, louder, funnier, and I hit those beats and then I go home. There's like, I didn't have to think about it. Whereas if I had started thinking about it at a young age, like, what do I think is interesting? What do I think acting, you know, makes people lean forward or pay attention? Um, I, I would have been better served. Um, so yeah, so we, 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 we made an effort. Um, and we, you know, I, we had a real great time with the kids as a result. Like we really connected with the girls and, and, and the guys too, it was just always this like, we, I, Shiloh and I started to feel like it was this little merry band of acting troupe, mm-hmm. you know, because they, they gave us some fun episodes, like where, fun character work for the kids. Like, you know, we did an episode where um, Rowan's character is like, pretends to be her online persona that she's created named Jessica. And we like got <laughs> to put her in this crazy outfit. And like, Rowan was so great. Like she just, she would love the chance to try things differently, you know, and, and, and like I said, by the time the cameras were rolling, it wasn't always the way it ended up, but like during rehearsals, we would be having so much fun with those kids. So when you were a kid, how did it work? Like, like you'd receive the script and then what was your process? Um, like when you were young? You know, I was always a voracious reader, so I was always, I would love reading scripts. So I would tear through the scripts and, um, uh, I don't, you know, I was, I, I pretty much did all that work on my own. Um, and then I would usually read it aloud with either my brother, um, or my mom. Uh, but my mom quickly, you know, she was not a, an entertainment person at all. Like she used to play piano and like help us when we would prepare our auditions, like she'd play the piano that and help us do that. But like, I think by the age of 10, like when we started working professionally, um, she sort of faded away as the voice of like, you know, anything more than like Being a mom. Yeah. Just being mom. Um, and, uh, we had like a, we had a manager. Uh, so there was this guy who, you know, very early on, he had worked at an agency that we had first signed with in San Francisco. So he became like our go-to coach for acting coach. And he was all, he would teach acting classes. And so we would work in like an acting class environment, or if I got a script for an audition, uh, I would go over it with him and he would usually, it was mostly a process of just being like, make bolder choices, like go a little farther, you know, like, Oh, that thing you're doing is great. Like do more and, and just giving me confidence. Um, and then go to an audition and then, yeah. Get, and then if like when it was on boy meets world, it was the easiest job in the world. Cause boy meets world, like a, a multi-camera show, you usually don't get the script until the night before, um, sometimes the morning of, and then you all sit around and you do a table read, um, which is so much fun. It's just like, trying to make each other laugh and you know bring this material to life and a lot of times that would be a cold reading like i wouldn't have wow. even read the script beforehand because it just got to the point where it's like well we know sean hunter we know Corey matthews like we all know our roles and we know our characters so we didn't have you just kind of flip through and be like is there any words i don't know how to pronounce okay do this. <laughs> um and then discovering it together and then um yeah from there you just start rehearsing and like we got to the point where it was so easy like we all you know after seven years like the last two years 
um, like, like I said, I was going to college in the mornings, like they gave me the mornings off. Um, and the show was just, it was so much fun. It was just, you know, just get together with your friends and like play, make believe and, and an audience would come in and laugh like crazy. And then we'd go home and, um, and it was a different time too. And that, you know, there was no social media. So like I was able to live a very private life, um, which I'm so glad, like never, I, I, I flew home to Northern California every weekend. Um, so even though I was working in LA five days a week, I was, and still to this day, my best friends are my friends that I grew up with up there. Um, obviously very close with my brother, like just, yeah, I, I think like it being a teen celebrity now is a whole nother thing. Cause you just kind of have to give your whole life over to it at the time. This was the nineties and I can get away with like, you know, putting on a hat, going home and like nobody knowing who I am. And that was great. Mm. You know what, something that you uh, could have done when you went home was, mm. and I don't even think that sentence came out with the correct words. <laughs> it felt wrong in terms of what tenses I used. Maybe, I don't, I don't know. But something went segue. awry. <laughs> yeah, that segue went awry. I had the best of intentions, but I want to talk to you about Blue Apron. Are you familiar with Blue Apron Rider? It's awesome. They send you everything you need to make a delicious home-cooked meal, all proportioned already, so you don't have to do that thing where you're like, I want to cook something. I'm going to find a recipe. I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to buy too much of everything. I don't know how much I need. Now I have leftover chervil. What do I do with it? And for me, by the time I'm done with the whole going to the store to buy everything I need, I'm too lazy to cook anything. That's where Blue Apron comes in. Uh, they know you're busy, so they're offering 30-minute meals. Um, some examples of stuff on the menu. Summer vegetable and egg paninis with Calabrian or Calabrian chili mayonnaise and caprese salad, soy glazed pork and rice cakes with bok choy and marinated green beans. It's affordable. There's variety. It's flexible. You can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Super easy. They, they send you these great recipe cards. So they break down how to make the meal and uh, with pictures. So whether you're a gourmet chef or just some idiot who doesn't know how to cook, no offense. I'm one of those people. Uh, it, they, it's super easy. You can definitely do it. And um, guaranteed, Blue Apron's freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. Blue Apron knows you're busy, so now they are offering 30-minute meals. These meals are made with the same flavor and farm-fresh ingredients you know and love and are ready in 30 minutes or less. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash allison. That's blueapron.com slash allison. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay. Where did you live in LA when you were flying up? It, yeah. So at first it was the Oakwood Apartments. Oh, nice. Burbank, which are no longer there. It's a it's another name but yeah it's where all the kid actors went it was like summer camp uh, all these kids would you know we'd show up and be living in the same complex and uh, my brother and i would have our rollerblades and like this this was before rollerblades had been like discovered as a thing so we would they, they didn't know to like make them like against the law oakwoods so we had run of the place we would be in every parking lot we had like made ramps it was like ridiculous um so yeah, that was like my that was early early teen years, uh, and then we lived in the valley for a little while. Like we rented a house, and then when I turned sixteen, I got my own apartment, um, which was pretty early. And I went downtown L.A. Did do you feel like you grew up fast? Yeah, yeah, but I think that would have happened regardless. I think mm -hmm. that's just the way I I kind of was. Like as as far as my parents are concerned, they they I was like just kind of ahead of my my time as far as like maturity level, which was great like you know i think i think regardless of whether i i mean obviously i had the means because i had money so i could afford my own place but like at the time 
I, my mom and I were just having the worst relationship, like between the ages of 14 and 16, it was so tense. Um, Why? Just because I was so ready to like be on my own. I was like, you know, and I'm, I was an asshole. Like, I'm, you know, like most teenage boys, I think <laughs> it was like, I don't need you, mom. Da, 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 da. Um, but, Did you get emancipated? Yeah. Um, and you know, I was just so mean to her and like, she was doing so much for me. And in retrospect, it's like just awful. And I've apologized a million times, but, um, she also has said like, no, you needed your own place. Like you were ready. And it turned out to be the case. Like the second I got my own apartment, our relationship got so much better. And like, at first she was like, I'm still going to be in LA. I'm still going to come to LA as much as I can. And it just quickly became apparent that like, I, I was a good kid, you know, like I wasn't, I wasn't drinking. I wasn't into drugs. Like all I cared about was work and school. Like I loved school and I loved work. So I think my, my mom was just like, okay, you're going to be fine. And then our relationship has been wonderful ever since. Like, you know, so I, I just grew up fast and I think, yeah, I'm sure that was somewhat accelerated by the, the, the kid acting stuff, you know, and I, I guess, you know, it's hard to say I was around adults all the time. So I think I had lots of models of like adult behavior, um, and I also just lucked out, like, as far as education, like, the studio teachers I got were amazing. Like, I think a lot of kid actors get screwed because they have studio teachers that are just well, – I don't know if this is the case anymore. At least I, I think earlier – like, earlier generations of kid actors got screwed. I think that's why you had a lot of the issues in the 80s and, and whatnot. Like, those kids just didn't have um, – didn't have m much qualified help in the schoolroom um, on sets because it was kind of like a hack job. And I think now, like since the 90s, they recognize that like, oh, the studio teacher needs to be like um, not only like a good teacher, like in terms of the subject matter and being able to like educate these kids, but also like just a role model and a friend and like a support system because we would spend four hours a day in a classroom on, on the set of Boy Meets World. So that's like almost half our day. Um sitting in a room together like with one teacher in charge of or in Boy Meets World we had two teachers in charge of four of us um you know that's a, that's a big job <laughs> like that's like kind of a and that's like another thing that you know for us being able to direct Boy Meets World so because they had the same studio teacher that we did um and so it was such a trip to be like checking in with him about the kids being like how are they doing how's school like what subjects are they into and he was like you know exactly the way he was with me He's like, like i've been doing this for 65 years yeah. <laughs> and he was so great like he was like an inside inside man on the kids um and yeah and just a great teacher so yeah anyway that i think i lucked out as far as that too so like like i said by the time i was 16 i, I felt ready to be mm -hmm. on my own i um i don't know where anymore but i somewhere i read that you were saying that you don't necessarily think child actors are more messed up than other kids. Yeah. It's just that you hear about it when they fuck up. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, if I think about like the high school in my small town of, you know, 6,000 people, like uh, how many drug addicts, alcohol related deaths, suicides, like stuff came out of like that small of a town and that small of a, it's like pretty pretty high i guess compared i mean and i think that like if you take a class of kid actors yeah there's gonna be a, about the same rate it's just they're in the public eye mm -hmm. i think um but you know obviously i'm biased <laughs> um but um i think there are some definitely some particular some particular things that 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 uh, affect a child actor's life that don't affect a, a non-child actor's life you know like money um enters the equation um and like how parents deal with that 
parents and managers and agents. Like there are lots of people who have something at stake with the kid earning money and that can get really messy. Mm -hmm. Um, I was again, very lucky. And my parents were like super responsible, had their own careers and like, didn't need my career for, for their financial well being. But you know, that gets tricky. Like if a, if a parent has to give up their life and, move to Los Angeles from who knows where and like maybe not be able to pursue their own career. It does kind of make sense that their kids should help contribute to their well-being. But then that gets into some weird like oh, right. who owns the house? Like who bought, you know. Um and then yeah, issues of fame like you know, it's it's a weird and like now I I can't even imagine what it's like with social media, but like uh your sense of self developing, you know, that is something that you have to sort of navigate it's difficult to navigate as a teenager no matter what when you add in the level of like you know public stage sort of recognition it can it could be more difficult um but i was able to live a fiercely private life so did so your level of let me, let me figure out how to phrase yeah. this as a question do you feel like your level of fame infringed at all on your sense of self um you no know, yes yes but but not uh, like Interestingly, it became more annoying in my 20s, like because my, you know, status as this sort of teen beat pop magazine, like that solidified like a certain part of me. Like that's like, oh, that's how most people know me. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, the guy with the weird name who was on that show. And yeah, someone, you know, used to have posters of me on your wall. Like that's like that's but most people. And like that's frustrating when. I want to be a writer and a director and be taken seriously as a thinker and like a creative person. And it's like, oh, but I'm sort of reduced to the fringes of pop culturedom. Mm. Like that's frustrating. Um, and that's been frustrating, you know, and, and even as an actor, that was difficult. Like when I'm trying to do like a play like The Graduate um, where I'm playing this great role and I'm on stage for two and a half hours, like working my ass off and like every review, it's just like, oh, a sitcom actor <laughs> shows up to do a real play. And it's like, but I'm really an actor, you know, but like, and I've been, you know, been, I've been working before Boy Meets World. I work after like, this is, that was just like one thing that I did. And yes, it's the thing, you know, but, or most people know, but come on. So that, you know, yes, yeah, so that affected me. And, and I think like, I was always uncomfortable with, with fame in general, like, um, but, and, and I think, to, you know, like I said, in the 90s, you could be uncomfortable and be okay. Like, I could sort of, like, push it away. Um, now, that would be such a detriment to my career. Um, you know, you have to constantly be like, here I am, I'm doing this. I mean, because, like, your lifestyle, your life becomes part of your acting brand. Um, How were you treated in college? Because I assume the other students knew who you were. Yeah, um... It, it was different at Occidental versus Columbia. Like Occidental was like my real college experience because Boy Meets World was still on. Uh, as a freshman, they made us live on campus. So I like, lived on campus. It's a very small school. And like I lived like college life for two years, like living in a dorm, parties, girls, like friends. Like it was, a, you know, the thing. Like it was definitely the college experience. Um, when I transferred to Columbia – um, I, because my, I was only going part time, you know, I ended up like a year ahead of everybody. So I was like actually 20 coming in as a sophomore at Columbia. And, um, I just was all about the school. I just, I didn't live on campus. I put my head down. I spent my days at the library. I think I only have like three friends from that period from Columbia. Um, I had already known a lot of people in New York. So I like, I lived in the village. I commuted to school and, um, 
like college was just about the work and the mm -hmm. academics at, at Columbia. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of glad I did that, but I also am like, oh man, I probably missed an opportunity to like meet a lot of interesting, fascinating people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, the year that I went to Columbia, it was like, um, who are the other actors, um, that were coming in? Julia Stiles was there. Um, there was, there was like this, I was like one of like three or four actors mm. all kind of coming in at the same time. But because I wasn't a freshman, I kind of got away with like just avoiding people and, you know, avoiding the sort of like collegiate lifestyle completely. Um, I was just, I felt, it felt more like I was like a, one of the lifelong learners, like showing up like the old people that come in and just to audit, to, yeah, to audit a class. <laughs> and like, that was me. Um, I connected a lot with my professors. Like I've had, I had a couple like really great mentors, um, people that I stayed in touch with even after, um, after I graduated. So yeah, um, my, my college experience was very, very much of that. Listening to Literary Disco, which is your podcast that you do with two childhood friends, mm -hmm. um, and you're all involved in the writing world, mm -hmm. uh, and you guys discuss what you're reading. So listening to that, I was listening to the most recent episode where you talk about what you're going to read this summer, and everyone's um, going to be reading these humongous, not light books. Yeah. And you're talking about uh, reading theory yeah. again. Uh, did you consider going to graduate school? Because listening, I'm like, oh, you're an academic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's the thing. It's like, I, I think if it wasn't for the entertainment industry, like if I hadn't been, I would totally be teaching somewhere because that's, I, yeah, I love. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I went to grad school for uh, fiction at Bennington um, and got my MFA, but that, you know, that's creative writing. Mm -hmm. So even that was sort of more, um, but that was partly to have an MFA um, so I can teach because I love the idea of teaching. Um, my buddy Todd Goldberg, who's who's a co-host of Literary Disco with me, he runs the UC Riverside Creative Writing Program. Um, and he's had me come out and like give lectures and like talk to, you know, about writing and stuff. And I, I love that stuff. I love theory. I love the mechanics of writing. I love, um, and I love the process of learning and teaching. Like I just... If I could be in school forever, I'd be the happiest person. Um, so, I actually yeah. just recently Googled structuralism and post-structuralism mm -hmm. because I I was an English major as well oh, nice. and took literature classes. At My college literature was more theory-based. Maybe okay. that's – is that probably everywhere yeah. across the board? Well, it used to be, definitely. I think it's less so now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I studied critical theory, and I look back on that period now, and I think – did I even truly understand it then? Like, it's so right. abstruse. Yeah, it's a um, I want to think I understood it then, but I <laughs> like I can't remember it. I yeah. can, but I can't. It's like these ideas are sort of hard to hold on to. Yeah, well, that's why they sort of stay theoretical, right? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I even took, I, like, film theory is also, like, a whole other weird world that you can go down. And, like, that. most of the film classes I took were around theory um, because, like, when it came to practical, like, actual filmmaking i felt like i oh i know this um i didn't really i still had to learn it but i thought i did in college so i took more like the theoretical critical side of film and it just it, it can become it's 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 a minefield like i feel like it, it you get to the point where you know when you're talking about like semiotics mm -hmm. or like the language of cinema or like, you know, I went through a phase in college, was really into Derrida and like... He's someone that I read that I'm like, did I really... I don't know that I really ever understood no, that. And no, and <laughs> nor should you. Do you okay, know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's one of those moments, like, and I think, I think it's pro partly because like that, 
the theory gripped academia from like the 1970s until like the early aughts. And then like, so I feel like for me, I was in college at the prime time mm -hmm. of like that approach and like breaking down, you know, the subaltern and like, you know, there's so many theorists and like, and I loved it all because it's tough and it's a cool way to like rethink about literature or film or whatever and it really does break down what you hold to be sort of self-evident you have to like sort of analyze everything and mm -hmm. every word choice and every shot choice in a film and why this person in i loved all that i loved breaking all that down uh but ultimately i think um it doesn't produce all that much <laughs> you know like there's it, i think there's a couple levels like i think the theorist that i brought up um on that episode Bakhtin. was, was Bakhtin. like he's actually pretty early like he's not like one of these postmodernists you know like he was an early um uh early 20th century or 19th i don't even remember <laughs> but anyway he was not like part of this movement of like you know the the later uh postmodernists who i i don't think hold up as well yeah, that's interesting what you're saying about how it doesn't add up to much. Like, I think it, I could see where it gives you a way to analyze, but you don't walk away necessarily with a different or greater understanding. Right. And it's also just it's like... It's just an exercise in thinking. Yes, exactly. It's, an, it's, a, it's a philosophical sort of like, oh, right, words, you know, for instance, like in Derrida, like, oh, we break so many things down into binary categories and like... That's a really that is true, right? Like that's it seems like a like that's the way we approach. And then like what the the concept that I love from Derrida was the idea of the transcendental signifier, which is like in so many texts there's a word that the author intends to escape language. Mm -hmm. Like the most basic example is God, right? Like God as a word in like the Bible or in any text about God where that's being taken seriously, the word God is supposed to imply something that's like undefinable except on its own terms it's like it's, it's a transcendent signifier it's supposed to mean like god is whatever you want to sort of but it's beyond language it's mm -hmm. not like other words where you can sort of say like there's an opposing word and you you have to look that up to define this word to define the next word and like it there's like a language constantly re self-referencing except for a word like god and like i love like a concept like that i've carried through into because you can kind of see when a writer depends on a transcendental signifier that might not mean anything like a, you know it, like i think a lot of bad writing uses the word soul for instance you're like well, what are you talking about <laughs> like what is this word soul actually and they can't define it, and that's the point it's like well then that's kind of bad writing like you know you have to define your own terms within the, your argument um so stuff like that i walked away but for the most part like i don't know if it really changed what i think is good literature or not you mm -hmm. know like i don't know if my understanding of you know Moby Dick is better because I've I understand semiotic theory like I don't I don't think so mm -hmm. I think like good storytelling is good storytelling and it's about like adding suspense and like it's it's more about a conversation that that like if you're a writer you're in conversation with our culture at that moment and like you just have to engage in that conversation I think theory um it doesn't affect that like mm -hmm. you know so I so I don't think it helps me be a writer. I think it helps it helps people be academics. That's what theory does. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, let's take some questions that listeners sent in on Twitter. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Ritzy Gal says, has having a child affected your writing productivity? Oh, so much. It's made it so much harder to write. <laughs> but 
it's made my writing better because I am so much more ambitious now. The pressure that I felt when when my wife was was pregnant and then having the kid, like it really pushed me, which then pushed my brother to write um, very different stuff than we had been writing. Like I think we always we had always been approaching writing as like we'll write this to sell it and get us the next job to sell that, to get the next job. And it was like, we were sort of writing to keep up with like the jobs. And when Indy was born, I remember having this moment with my brother where we, we were pitching this drama hour long drama show about comic book writers. And I was like, I had the bottle and was like feeding Indy while we're talking about it. (laughs) And we just got so excited to realize like, we're writing for adults. Can we stop thinking like, let's write like, and I, we just like, we're like, why are we holding back? Like, let's write the most complicated script we can. Like, this should be the kind of thing that we would want to watch. Like, screw like who we're writing this for. And like, what, you know, like, let's write this for ourselves. Like, what's the show that we, about comic book writers that we, and we just like upped our game. And like that one moment, I remember I'm holding my son and I think that was part of it. It's like, you feel this pressure to be like, life's short, man. Like, this is all we've got. Like, mm-hmm. cause a child is like a little hourglass. The moment they're born, you're just watching the sand trickle through and you're like, no, cause they get older so quick and they're constantly getting into a new phase. Um, so that has been the best pressure for me to be like, no, like I'm a grown up. It's time for me to be writing grown up stuff. Like, and I, you know, I'm, I, it's, it's probably way less interesting what that actually means, but I think that that is a shift that you have to make once you have a kid. It's like, oh wait, I have to up my game in whatever capacity, whether it's creative or, you know, lifestyle or whatever, like you just suddenly you're like, it's real life and it's happening right now. I've had, I've sort of talked about that in different terms on the show a bit, but it's this like, if ever there's a time to stop relating with the world as if I'm a child and to stop like waiting for permission for things. Exactly. It's, I had this realization, like I've always been just and I'm old, by the way, and I've always, though, been waiting, like, eventually I will s- somehow feel mature enough to, like, truly feel like an adult. And right. I had this realization that, no, it's just a decision you make. Exactly. It's never, I'm not going to suddenly be 65 and be like, I think I finally feel like an adult. It's just, <laughs> I've been an adult for a long time. Like, you right. just make the choice to, I'm going to just be an adult now. Right. right. <laughs> um. Okay. Brina's baby says, if you and Will, it's Friedel, right? Yeah. Uh, Friedel. Friedel. If you and Will Friedel were stuck on a desert island to get, sorry, Will. If you and Will <laughs> Friedel were stuck on a desert island together, what's the first thing you would do? Oh, God. <laughs> Laugh. Um, I don't know. Will, Will would be great to be stuck on a desert island with because he, he's so damn funny, but um, we'd be stuck there. We would not get off the island very easily. Uh, yeah, I have no idea. Um, I, I don't really know how to answer that question. Will, I mean, Will's like one of my best friends, and he's he is truly the funniest human being I've ever met in my life. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure if anybody's uh, watched Will give interviews or um, do anything, they they understand how genius he is. Um, but yeah, he he um, he's definitely a homebody. He does not good in the outdoors. This is a man who has a movie theater in his house <laughs> and is very happy watching movies and playing video games uh, and uh, playing D and D. So I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know how great he'd be as a partner as far as survival in the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> Rambling Kite says, "How was your experience staying in Disney World on Disney's dime while filming the Disney World episode of Boy Meets World?" It was so fun. Like whenever they flew us to Disney World, it was like. 
that was when we felt like famous celebrity people, you know, because everything was taken care of. And of course, we were like teenagers. So, we, you know, going to Disney World where when it's like shut down and they mm-hmm. give you the whole like park to yourself. It's a dream. Yeah. And we get to go to the front of every line. Like we had, you know, private escorts basically like you know taking us to the front of every line for any ride we wanted at one point they like shut down or they were redoing the tower of terror and they let us just ride it as many times as we wanted at 11 o'clock at night wow. so like the whole park was shut down but they were working on the ride so they were like you guys can just take this elevator as many times as you want just tell us when you want to get off and we were like yeah <laughs> so there were so many fun perks like that um yeah i mean you know like every kid disney is a big a big thing you know so it was really fun so to go back to this desert island question mm-hmm. of the uh, uh actors <clears throat> or actresses that the audience might know is there one that you'd be like oh that would be a good person to be stuck in the wilderness with <laughs> no <laughs> no I, I mean none of them are very good at, i mean it'd be fun to be stuck in the wilderness wilderness with them but i mean uh danielle fischel is like super practical and like very very smart i think i would probably be stuck on an island with her because she would she would be in control and like be totally confident in the situation and not fall apart ben might fall apart uh will would fall apart um i I would i I think i would would take danielle all right let's do just me or everyone sometimes i ponder on something i have thought or done just me or everyone guys i forgot to mention some important things if you like what you're hearing subscribe itunes.com slash allison rosen also rate and review won't you and i'm on patreon patreon.com slash allison rosen is where you go for that um it's very fun there's different reward levels you can get bonus episodes you can get access to um an interactive live video stream you can't don't worry you're not being videoed right now (laughs) uh you can get merch in the mail all sorts of access to me, like too much. You'll be you'll be begging me to leave you alone. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. If, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, which you are, they have everything, especially stuff we've talked about on the show. Amazon, uh, sorry, go on my website, Allison Rosen, there's an Amazon banner. Click through, let them know who sent you. Doesn't cost you anything extra, etc. Okay, so just me or everyone. Noah says, I'm so used to texting that when a friend calls, I assume it's an emergency. Just me or everyone. Yes, I have that. Um, my mom, acts, she butt dials me all the time. I think because I have a name that starts with A, so it's the first thing in her phone. Yep. I don't know. But I always panic for a second when I see her name on my phone thinking, yep. uh-oh, something's happened. Yep, that's my first thought too. That's terrifying Yeah, that we're at that point. Yeah. What about if your wife calls you? less so but no i think I, I i immediately think something's wrong like it's like it requires more than like i'm gonna be here at this time or i'm gonna go yeah it's always bad news right. it's never a good thing to get a phone call you feel is, that way or you think yes. that, or you think that's the case i think that's totally the case <laughs> <laughs> no i mean yeah unless it's business like unless it's like oh it's during business hours and somebody like an agent or a manager or a producer or somebody's calling like no i hate getting phone calls it's always like Oh, something's wrong with a credit card company or <laughs> right. Or yeah, something's wrong with a family member. Danielle Lynn says, I eat the majority of the popcorn before the previews are over at the movies. You got to make a rule with yourself that you don't yeah. start till the or movie just starts. Get a large. Yeah. <laughs> don't go for the small. Uh, Sooner Magic says, 
Oh, this back to technology. I have real irrational anxiety about listening to voicemail. I do too, and I don't know why, but I will let the voicemail sit on my phone. Well, actually, now my phone just transcribes it, which right. is nice, except it doesn't transcribe it very well. But yeah, I too have that like, oh, I'm going to be on the hook for something listening. <laughs> I'm going to feel obligated. I'm going to have to call somebody back. <laughs> Something's <what> happening. <laughs> yeah. Do you not have that? No. I Yes, I do. I hate phones in general. Like I, this is, it's like one of my biggest, like I'm going to make sure that my son is comfortable with using the phone because I was never comfortable as a kid mm. and I never translated to my, like I'm horrible on the phone. I'd much rather be email or text or anything, anything other than, than phone, which is really stupid. How do you feel about business meetings or auditions or what have you via Skype. Horrible. Yeah, because I don't like it either. And But I look at it and I'm like, in some universe, this is actually much easier than going yeah. in person. Yeah, but it's, no, it's awkward. I don't know. Yeah. Are we old? Like, right. Like, are young, they, like, I, do 20-year-olds like not care? And it's like I the bet same they thing. Don't. FaceTime is like totally. Yeah, I mean. I also never FaceTime. Yeah. See, I like, mean, very rarely. You realize when, like, now that my son can get, FaceTime with his grandparents, that becomes a thing because they're not in town. So it's like, right. And, yeah. That's and it's the only time. Super beneficial. Like, and, and so, but so he's going to grow up with it. Like that's going to be like seeing grandma. And so he's going to have no, none of the awkwardness maybe that we do. Uh. Yeah. My son is six months and we've FaceTimed a little bit with my parents. And I wonder like, does, does he, what does he think is happening? Yeah. Who knows? Who I have knows? no idea. <laughs> Uh, Jason Dick says, soda machine roulette, get some change, feed it into the soda machine and press the coin return, research new coins value. I've, I've never done that. Never. I've only ever done something like that. If it was a mis- like, if I realized, oh, I don't want anything here. They don't have what I want. Then I would get my change back. Yeah. But I've never just, no, no. But look at him living his life, having fun. <laughs> Maddie Porter says, have to open any package I receive in the mail immediately, regardless of how dull the contents are inside. No, I have the opposite of that, which is that packages sit here unopened for a long, long time. And then I just go to Amazon and I click my orders and it's like deliver, you know, left by your mailbox. And I'm just like, I think I know what that is. (laughs) And I never, I, I hate opening packages. I don't know why. I love opening packages. Really? Yeah. Jeff even recommend, didn't you say I should get a switchblade or something? Yeah, it makes opening packages a lot more fun. Because that's part of the problem is that I'm always sitting there like with a key trying to do it no, or need, with need, kitchen shears. I don't have need, anything good. You need a lot of box cutters handy so that you can just have one, open it. Right. They're fun. They're very slim Great to have and useful. Yeah. But a switchblade <laughs> to use as a letter opener is a lot of fun. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. I, that's the, Isn't that's, that illegal? <laughs> it's a, a spring-assisted blade is what it's gotcha, called. Gotcha, gotcha. Switchblade is illegal, but a spring-assisted blade. What's the difference? <laughs> uh, semantics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your honor. <laughs> yeah, that's why I don't open them. I don't have the right tool. You can get like a tiny little one with a pink pearl handle and everything. Ooh, for ladies? Shrink it and pink it, yeah. <laughs> I'm always like grabbing a pen or a key and it never works. Yeah. It's always like, ugh, why do they have to ram? And then, and then it's also just so depressing when you open stuff from Amazon, how much packaging they use. They use so much packaging. Leela Rolling Stone says, who are these wizards in movies who are able to dry off from the shower with one measly towel? Hmm. This is a long. It's a it's a long hair problem. I was going to say, yeah, this is about hair. Yeah, because I bet you're a one towel guy. Yes, of course, yeah. you wizard. <laughs> Levi Jones says, when a fly is buzzing around me, I worry that I smell bad. I really don't. Maybe I should. 
Yeah. I've never thought about that. But wouldn't a fly be attracted to you smelling like food or... No, or poo. Or poo. I think either. Now I'll look at it that way. Sometimes, though, I am like, leave me alone. There's all these people here. Why me? You know? It's because I smell bad, I guess. And lastly, and Ryder, I think you might be able to offer some insight into this one. James Leroy Wilson says, afraid to be in the studio audience for a TV show. If they put me in the back, that means I'm not very attractive. Is that true? Whoa. No. Well, so we never put our audience on camera. So um, they're talking about a situation where they're in, they're like on camera. Right. Yeah. Like Dr. Phil. Oh my God. But you want to be in the back in, in case there's like a magician or something and they pull somebody from the front because you don't want to be in that situation. Right. Uh, I don't know. I don't think they actually put attractive or less attractive people. The only thing I could see being a concern is like diversity. Like they don't want like all white people or like divided by, you know, race or gender. So I could see that they shuffle it for that mm-hmm. to just like, but they would never, I don't, I'm not going to say never, but I'm I'm assuming it's not about someone's attractiveness. Right. I went to a party. There was this weird chunk of my career. I was working at the OC Weekly and I started getting invited to to events at the Playboy Mansion and like invited to different Playboy Channel tapings, all of which I went to and wrote about in this weird like, what the fuck is happening? (laughs) Like this is, you know, I, I didn't write about I didn't write about it uncritically um but it was amusing and there was this one party that my friend and i went to at the playboy mansion and they took polaroids of us before we got into the party and i oh i still am wondering what was that for like in my mind it's so they can be like who's not coming to the next one right but maybe it was just in case they like they so if, if photos were taken they could identify the people it was weird it was like a casting i was gonna say that sounds like yeah because casting calls they do that they'll take your polaroid just to remember you right or but it, like yeah to know what you look like that day as opposed to your headshot which is such a good right this was to get to the playboy mansion no it was it we it was it was like their midsummer night was it their midsummer night it was some famous party they have there oh, it wasn't a maybe casting. they just keep a photo book of like everyone that comes every year or whatever so there's like some you're part of a giant yearbook somewhere that's a benign way of looking at it maybe i want to think maybe it was that i would go with that okay did you get invited next the next year no <laughs> <laughs> i even wore my best pantsuit <laughs> oh. oh well <laughs> Ryder, it was so much fun having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I feel like we didn't talk about your podcast enough. Tell them, tell them about it and where they can find it. Uh, it's Literary Disco, so literarydisco.com. There's a, on an iTunes. episode about Sweet Valley High, which, believe you me, was the first one I went to. Yeah, I was. High, yeah, we we've done over a hundred episodes at this point. Um, most of our episodes are focused on one book, um, and it's usually in the title. If not, it's like what we're reading that summer or sometimes we have authors on to discuss um they if we have an author on they pick a book for us to read so it's not just talking about their book um it's talking about what they're reading um yeah so it's it's mostly just a friendly book discussion um and uh 
We have a new poets episode coming out because it's been a while since we've covered poetry, but we read everything. I recommend, yeah, going back and if people remember like Flowers in the Attic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did that, which was mind boggling. Um, and uh, we read Hardy Boys as a classic episode. Um, a lot of the YA stuff has gone over very well because those are the books a lot of people have, you know, read years ago and don't really remember. It's weird. And so we reread them and, and they're horrible. Like Sweet Valley High has like multiple rapey yeah. moments date rapey like you're like what i had forgotten about that but then you guys reminded me right and it opens with her like looking at herself in the mirror and being like i wish i was thinner it's like the kind of book that just would never be written now but it was like so clearly in the the 80s oh yeah uh but yeah so it's it's basically book discussion we're three writers um we all went to uh, grad school together um and then um yeah we kind of come from different perspectives but uh for the most part we just read whatever whatever we can and talk about it. And um, anything else you want to plug or anything else they should look out for? No, that's it right now. Um, my brother and I are buckling down to make our first feature. So we're just finishing up or the script stage right now. And then we'll hopefully be shooting by next early next year. And so then I'll have something to promote, but probably like a year and a half, two What's years. What's it from about? Now. Um, it, it's, it's a thriller. It's about, um, men's rights the whole men's rights movement Uh, that's kind of happening which is very disturbing mm -hmm. and i think in response to this election my brother and i were like we need to write something about this um there was a whole in the 90s i don't know if you remember the whole mythopoetic men's movement Mm -mm. it was like this robert bly was this whole like um men in our culture don't have rites of passage then like you know, it was actually very like self-helpy, sort of benign. Um, it's not like the men's rights stuff that's happening now. Uh, but we decided to sort of combine the two and make a sort of culty thing out of it, a horror thriller out of that world. Um, and we're really excited. It's like it's one of the funnest scripts we've written. And it's, you know, we intentionally because everything we've written has been like a giant movie like 10 million dollars or more and you know we sold a, a script to Lionsgate that probably would cost like 60 million to make and like so this was like what can we actually go shoot ourselves with actors we know and like go make this for uh, a couple million dollars like you know on the cheap and so that's what this project is oh, that sounds really great happy. yeah yeah we're really stoked does it have it. a title yet uh, right now it's men's rights but r-i-t-e-s oh so men's rights yeah. nice uh and on twitter you're just at writer strong yeah yes Jeff, where can we find you? You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Colonel Jeff Fox. And follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-N-B-F. And please follow me on Instagram at Allison Rosen. My number has been exactly the same for so long, and it's it's bumming me out. Okay. Thank you again for doing the show. Yeah. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? Rosen is your new best friend.